Hi, everybody. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome this week's guest, an old friend, actress, singer, Renaissance woman, Kim Carath. Hi, Kim. Hi, Steve. So fun to see you. It's only been 40 years. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't really believe it's been that long, but yeah, there you go. Well, just for the listeners, uh, Kim and I go back to 82. I was doing freelance work for the LA Times, and I pitched them on the idea of where have all the Sound of Music kids going, gone? And they were very excited to let me go run and do my research. And I have to say that Yours was the most interesting interview for me because I walked up to your doorstep with with Gretel in mind. And when you opened the door at, I guess you were in your 20s at the time, I said, yep. oh, my God, who is that? 20, 22 or so. 20, yeah, 22. There you go. So um, it was it was fun. And I have to say, like like many people. The Sound of Music is an evergreen for me. I return to it like I return to looking at a Mozart or listen to a Mozart or look at a, a Van Gogh. I mean, it's for me just an evergreen. And I was thinking today, I was doing a little meditation about what we would talk about. And it, it kind of, um, it dawned on me that here it is, it's 2022. At the time of this recording, we're in, the, we're in the midst of this horrible war in Ukraine. And I said to myself, oh my God, the scene and the sound of music in the auditorium at the end, when, you, they, they, the, when um, Georg is singing uh, Edelweiss and the audience starts chipping in, bless my homeland forever. I, I, almost, I almost broke down about that because it seems to me that yes, the movie is is obviously an old movie, 1965, but more more timely than ever. It is, you know, it's remarkably timely, of course, right now. But overall, you know, there's there is such a such an incredible universality to that movie, and such a, I mean, the 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 older I got, I I learned more about the real von Trapps and what Georg von Trapp actually did, which was to refuse the overtures of Hitler, not once, but three times, until people around him actually said, you, you can't keep refusing the, you know, the offers of, of Hitler and be okay. At which point then he left with the family after having asked every single one of the children whether they would agree to that or not. He wanted the whole family to agree because he knew how difficult it would be to be a refugee. And, and, and it was for them. I mean, when they arrived in New York, it was the Catholic League that basically helped them and took them in. They had like, I don't know, $15. They had nothing. They'd left everything behind. But, you know, for me, one of the most remarkable, there, there's so much great dialogue apropos of the need to be a, the best person you can possibly be, the need for honor, and not just to go along with whatever it is that's happening that is not the right thing. 
I mean, when he took that Nazi flag and tore it into pieces, it was it was quite a it was quite a moment. And and in real life, that's basically the person that he was and the people the family were. So as I've gotten older, that's something that definitely affects me a lot. And watching, yes, what's been going on recently, so heartbreaking and horrible. Thinking of all those people leaving things behind. I was watching the news yesterday to see a lot of Ukrainian women going back in to that had left, going back in. I mean, these are amazing, tough people. And they're they're fighting for their homeland. And I certainly hope they prevail. As as we do, absolutely. Well, um I I made a trip um last month i and kind of a little bit of a vacation um it wasn't for my wife and i it was basically just kind of a guy's trip i met some people i know in dubai which is really at the ends of the earth um it was fun but on the way over you're on a very long plane flight and uh you have uh, in the old days they would run one or two movies and that was it and then you try to sleep well now of course you have 150 movies to choose from and i'm you know i'm scrolling through the list and I'm going through them all and I, of course I settled on the sound of music for the 85th time it was like I was watching it for the first time and you know it it just it just part of the motivation obviously to get in touch with you immediately for the podcast obviously but the movie holds up so beautifully I want to talk to you uh, about um, your experience I mean the people out there remember you as little Gretel of course and you were very, very young at the time, but I'm curious uh, about uh, your family was not in show business, really, uh, or were they? And were your parents involved in show business at all? My, my parents were not involved in show business. My father was um, a restaurateur, and my but my mother loved show business, and she had uh, she sang opera and she sang beautifully. She actually sang at Carnegie Hall once, and I think, you know, had aspirations for us. I came, I arrived 15 years after my brother and sister did, so I was really the baby of the family, but my brother and sister had done, had danced and sang and were in TV shows and movies before before I arrived. Well, really? Like, give, give me an example of something. I you're... really can't, because they were okay. so long ago, and I oh. forgot like there was a, my, they'll, they'll, my, my sister would be horrified that I can't remember anything off the top of my head. Were they, the, were they using the last name Karath? They were, they, they were. were. Okay. And my brother actually had a, well, my sister was in Gypsy. She was one of the dancers in Gypsy. Oh, okay. But that was behind the Hollywood blondes behind Natalie Wood. Oh, interesting. Okay. And um, she played Ray Bulger's niece in Ray Bulger's tv show he had a series at one point okay um they were both very very talented um they my sister still as my brother passed away a few years ago um he actually you kind of had like a mini a mini von trapp family a little bit but (laughs) you know i i I didn't have any desire they had they had stopped pretty much by the time i was born right um, except for my brother who had a recording contract and there's still one of his singles that you can listen to on YouTube or YouTube. Yeah, YouTube. And it was a beautiful song and he, he really shouldn't have given up singing, but anyway, um, 
by the time I was born, I think my mother was kind of tired of all of that. And she had tried to take me to a couple of interviews, which I rejected summarily at like three. Um, and because I was three going on about 16. <laughs> so you and were one of those kids. <laughs> I was one of those kids. And I had plenty of attention at home. So, I mean, I did love performing, but I had an audience built in all the time who just were very amused by all my little tricks. So I didn't particularly want to go out anywhere and show off to anybody else. But, um, and so I basically, my mother gave up for me until of course, fate took, you know, had a hand in what happened next, which was that I was discovered at my father's restaurant. And when they, the producers approached me to be in the first movie, which I made, which is a movie called Spencer's Mountain, playing um, Henry Fonda and Maureen O'Hara's daughter, uh, my, when they approached my mother, she said, oh, don't ask me, ask her. <laughs> and I, I said, if it won't take too long, because I'm really busy, I have a lot of things to do, and I have a lot of dolls to take care of. <laughs> and so they nonetheless were charmed despite that, you know, <laughs> smarty pants answer. It was a totally sincere answer. And by the, by and the way, what, by the way, what was your father's restaurant? It was a restaurant called Albert Allen's, and he had another restaurant called Gigi's. Oh, wow. Okay. What kind of yeah. food? American. American food. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. So, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of actors went into Albert Allen's because it was actually on, it was on at Hollywood and Vine, basically. Hollywood and, oh. sorry, Hollywood and Melrose, right there. Hollywood and Melrose. Okay. Sorry, Melrose. Yeah. Let me just, Melrose and what's the cross street there? Island, La Brea. No. All right, let me think about that. I, this was more or less, I think he was out of that restaurant by the time I was six or seven. Um, so anyway, it was, on, it was on Vine in any case. The only, the only reason I'm asking you, and for the listeners, I didn't mean to distract Kim, but I'm, I'm like Kim, I'm pretty much an LA native. So I figure I know every restaurant, which, but I, I didn't know your dad's. It was gone a long, you know, it was gone a long time ago, you uh, know, and, and, but there was a theater behind called the Angel Theater. And people like Telly Savalas and Robert Blakely were at that theater and they would go into the restaurant all the time. Plus you got all the people from Desilu and it just was, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it was a happening place because I don't think it really was. It just was like a good neighborhood kind of place. Sure, sure. So that's where I happened to get my, the thing that launched, you know, what I, what I did. And, um, for the second movie I made, which was the thrill of it all, Norman Jewison just called me directly and set it up for me to be in that movie playing Doris Day's daughter. Sure. Do you have well, do you have any memories of the Henry Fonda picture that stick out in your mind? I do, and they're silly ones because um, well, I hated the costumes because we were poor children who lived in the mountains in Wyoming. In Wyoming. <laughs> And they were super scratchy. So typical, what a three-year-old, what do you remember? You know, <laughs> scratchy costumes. And I remember how beautiful Maureen O'Hara was. Um, you know, just, she smelled, it, she just smelled wonderful and looked so breathtaking. And I did notice that it kind of looked a little strange for her to be in like burlap, you know, that like our burlap nightgown things with this gorgeous face that had been beautifully made up and the hair perfectly done it was you know I you notice those things as a little kid like it sure. seemed a little 
But, um, and apparently, and I don't know, I only know this secondhand because I was told later that because my memory was always so prodigious and um, I could use a little bit of that prodigious memory right now. I mean, I have a great memory, but it's not like when I was super tiny and um, I apparently knew everybody's lines. And when Henry Fonda would go up on his lines in a scene with me, I would tell him what his lines were. <laughs> I'm sure which, he really appreciated apparently that. Apparently he didn't appreciate that <laughs> as, as much as you might think, you know? <laughs> oh my God, so embarrassing when you think about it. And then, but I got really sick on that shoot. I got asthma for the first time in my life. Oh, wow. And had to be helicoptered out of, out of uh, Jackson Hole to, um, or out of wherever we were that minute to the big hospital. Oh, how long and were you used, down? I don't know, but they used, uh, you can, in some of the shots, you'll just see, quote, me from behind. And it's not me. It's the little girl that they had to get to, you know, to do those long shots. So then you do Doris Day's Thrill of It All. Which was so much fun because I got to stay home, first of all. I didn't have to right. go anywhere with like high altitudes and pine needles or anything. Making or, me, or scratchy you know, burlap. Or scratchy brilliant, but I was a you know the a daughter's uh, the daughter of a doctor, so I got to wear incredibly cute little costumes, which was way more fun for me. And Doris Day was a doll. That was my second movie star to really gaze at, and she was sweet and warm and lovely and so beautiful and so elegant, and it was lots of fun to pretend to be her daughter. Interesting, and I, I assume that mom came to all of these shows and was at your side. She did, but, you know, they have a way of, like, kind of <laughs> separating the mothers from, which they should anyway, because, right. you know, you've got to listen to the director. You have to, you know. Yeah, you don't want a stage mother syndrome going on. Right. Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, you come to, um, I mean, the sound of music is such a part of your life. I, I For you to remember things um, when you're eight years old. <clears throat> five years old. Five years old, five years old. It's I was, yeah, when we started, I was five and they didn't want to hire me initially. I mean, they wanted to hire me, but they didn't like how young I was because five-year-olds could only, um, could only work limited hours. Right, right. And when remember, I turned six, yeah, it was a big event on the set because I could work longer hours. It was it one of those audition processes where you were in a room with a lot of Gretels or there was just you? You're never, well, you're not in the same room, but you're in the waiting room. You right. know, there's like the, before you go into the office. Right. I don't remember anything about that. That I don't remember. I do remember, you know, a room full of men in suits. That was, you know, one of my early, what, frankly, probably one of my first auditions when, when I think about it, because everything else I more or less just did without auditioning. So I had been told what to do. And I, since I loved singing, um, I knew all the songs of, you know, and when they asked at the singing audition, you know, what song would you like to sing? I said, I know all of them. What would you like me to sing? And, oh my goodness. <laughs> and, I did it. and I sang 16 going on 17, if you can imagine that. Wow. That's a pretty, uh, I mean, that's, that's not a little i mean it must have been fairly ludicrous to see well you have a little five-year-old singing that song but hey you know what they liked it and that was it 
Oh, that's so funny. Because I kind of thought I was like 16 at the time. It was, you know, because because my brother and sister were so much older. So you matured a lot faster. I think that being a sibling really matures you. Uh, I know for a fact, being an only child, that it, I, couldn't, I couldn't remember anything at five to save my life. Uh, then again, I didn't work on The Sound of Music at five, which arguably is... Is like, uh, you know, is like attending the presidential convention of movies. I mean, my goodness. So you get the role um, and you, you um, what are your first memories of Robert Wise? One of my favorite directors, by the way, I've, I've interviewed him twice. Interestingly, one of my guests on my podcast a few weeks ago was Billy Gray, who was in Father Knows Best but he was also the star of uh, one of the stars of the day the earth stood still the science fiction movie that Robert Wise directed. So, uh, and then I, I've, I talked to him about the haunting later, which was that Shirley Jackson uh, ghost thriller that he made just before the sound of music. But what do you, do you have memories of Robert? I do. I have, I have mostly lovely memories of him. He was very patient, man, very sweet, very patient. And, Whenever he talked to the kids, you know, well, the short kids, the little kids like me and Debbie, he would kneel down to our level. He never spoke. I mean, it sounds like a silly thing, but he didn't stand and talk to us from his height. He knelt down to just be on our level eye to eye to really communicate well. And so, you know, he made it feel like we were a team working together. Sure, sure. Lovely, very, very lovely. It it did probably get us into some trouble later with um, you know, the the boat scene, because you know, it's it's funny how sometimes you look at things obviously from a from a different lens as time goes on, from a fuller perspective. And you didn't ask this, but I'll jump into it. Um, when the Alec Baldwin thing happened. I found myself revisiting that the boat the boat accident scene in Sound of Music, because that could have gone wrong. Very, very wrong, very wrong. For the listeners who uh, uh, want to be caught up on this, there's a scene in the Sound of Music where the children are on in a little boat as they're coming back, and they see they see that um, uh, Christopher Plummer as Georg and um, Eleanor Parker as the Baroness are there, so they come. They, and Julie Andrews in the boat, they all stand up at the same time and then they, they tip the boat over. So everybody goes in the water. It's what they call, quote unquote, a comical moment in the series, but not a very comical moment for you. Not at all. Well, first of all, it wasn't planned for me to do that scene. It was planned to have my, because I couldn't swim. It was planned, the, the original plan was to have my stand-in do the scene it, be, it being at a, a long enough distance, a far enough distance, so that you wouldn't notice it was, you know, the stand-in. They could have had her behind Friedrich or, you know, whatever. But at the very last minute, Robert Wise decided that it didn't, he didn't want it. It wouldn't look the way he wanted it to look. So it was, must have been a, a massively spontaneous decision on his part. 
and happily it turned out okay, but it could have gone really, really wrong. So he went to my mother and he asked her if I would do the scene. And my mother said, ask, ask her, you know, ask him, which was also a mistake on my mother's part, I might add, because we didn't ask a five-year-old if they're going to go do something that's potentially super dangerous. And of course, because I loved Robert Wise and I loved everybody and I was a team player, even though I was a little girl, I, I was like, okay, absolutely terrified. And they said, we've got, you know, someone who, that Julie will catch you, but if she doesn't, for some reason, we have someone on shore who will jump in. Well, I mean, how many things can go wrong there? Just how many? They did it the first time, it worked out fine. We dried off, put those horrible costumes on again. The drapes. And the drape costumes, my least favorite costume, and um, did it again. But, but oh, let me just backtrack a little bit. This was actually pretty traumatic for Julie because, as she's said many a time, right before they were going to start filming, Robert Weiss whispered in her ear, you need to catch the little one because she can't swim. Oh, Okay. So she was pretty distressed by that too. Anyway, she caught me perfectly well the first time. They, he didn't like that take. <laughs> of <Okay>. course. <laughs> take two, take two, take two. Julie goes off in the other direction and I go under. And someone jumped in. It was the assistant director's son, who was the second assistant director, Alan Callow, jumped in picked me up from the bottom of the, you know, the lake basically. And which I had swallowed like God knows how much lake water, which came out later on poor Heather when I, you know, threw up all over her, you know, as we were about to do a scene because she was holding me so close. Thank God. I think she saved me from secondary drowning, which is a real thing. Mm. And um, we've, we used, to, she and I talked about that because Heather and I were incredibly close. That was a, horrific loss because she was you know not just someone in a movie she was and and not even just a good friend she was a really really close friend throughout sure. my entire life sure. but in the later years I told her I think she you know Heather I think you saved my life that day because I was crying so hard and she was squeezing me so hard and it made me you know vomit up all the lake water oh, so but you don't be. vomit up the lake water on camera though that's a behind no. the scenes thing no moment. that's yeah wow although apparently heather's story is as they were starting the scene robert wise said to her up oh, heather there's there's something you know we need to clean off your your shoulder your costume you see her holding me in the it, like there's a jump cut right and Heather's holding me. Well, it was just before that, that, you know, anyway, it's, it's kind of a lot to put a little kid through and oh, sure. upon reflection may not have been a great idea. So things can go bad, bad, very fast on a set. Well, I wish this story had been told more widely because even though it's a total, totally different situation, I don't think John Landis would have allowed those children to be working in that river on the Twilight Zone movie, when the helicopter fell on them and killed them. I think that these kind of stories need to be popularized so people know how important it is to protect kids. They broke every rule in the book on that movie. And uh, for the listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, the Twilight Zone movie 
that was released in the early 80s had a horrible accident, which killed Vic Morrow, one of my favorite actors and the two children. But thank you for sharing that, because if there are some filmmakers listening to this podcast, they'll just see how important it is to do those extra sa safety checks and not put people in jeopardy like you. You know, the film, and no matter how you look at it, the film would have been just as good using the stand-in who could swim, kind of just shoved in the background somewhere of one of the taller kids, like, like Friedrich, like Nikki Hammond, for example. Sure. And nobody would have been the wiser, and then nobody would have been at risk. And thankfully, it all turned out fine, except I don't like rowboats, and I'm not mm. a great swimmer. But, you know, it could have gone bad for no really good reason sure you know sure. you can't put people's lives at risk for a movie you can't no, no. so did, 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 did they start shooting the sound of music in the studio before you went off to Salzburg or did you they did they did they okay did. we had all our rehearsal we rehearsed e extremely precisely we did all the recording which was so cool I mean, it was a multiple piece orchestra that we sang with. It was it was just so much fun to do that. I love that. And being on the, that, you know, in the recording studios like that yeah. and watching yeah. the orchestra and a lot, a lot of rehearsals so that we were ready. And we also started filming. And the first scene that we did was My Favorite Things. And Nikki oh, likes to oh, go- In the bedroom. Well, yeah, in the bedroom. That was the first time we were fully assembled. And um, Charmian was the last Von Trapp to be added. And so that was the first time we'd gotten to really be, you know, fully together as a group. And it was so much fun. I remember that vividly because it was the beginning of feeling like a family. And Julie could not have been warmer and sweeter or made it easier for all of us. Well, I think that part of the charm of The Sound of Music is the spot on casting. Every role is just so perfectly cast. And I think Julie Andrews, who um, I think what is the story goes that she was supposed to play the lead in My Fair Lady. I think it went to Audrey Hepburn. And I think she was still a, uh, a talent to be discovered and, of course, explodes on The Sound of Music. And, and no one else could have played Maria like Julie Andrews. Oh. She was perfection. It, it was uh, I, irreplaceable, absolute perfection. So you finish in the studio. Have you done all the songs? Do you have a favorite song in the piece? Do you know, I, I have many favorite songs. I love all of them. But um, probably as I got older, my least favorite song became my favorite song. So my least favorite song as a little kid was the climb every mountain part because it was so intense and sad and you know I didn't have to sing it but it was it was a very intense moment in the movie and and as a little kid that was kind of like as I watched it a million times as a little kid you know um I was it wasn't as much fun as all the rest of the songs for me obviously but as I got older boy the profoundness of that resonated so much i mean there, it's magnificent music every single one of those songs is magnificent but you know the one that resonates the most with me is uh is climb every mountain at this point and it, it does tend to bring me to tears a lot um and it's very personal um it became immensely personal for me 
in my, you know, years as a mother, because I have a wonderful son who has special needs and they are big needs, not as big as they used to be because he's, you know, done incredibly well, but that became a little bit of an anthem. Sure. I could see that. The, um, the scene, uh, well, let's see the, the scene where you do, um, so long, farewell. Uh, that that was probably shot at Fox in L.A. before you left. It was, and I I laugh every time I watch that because I'm so little that my I, my steps are just not quite right. You know, they're like <laughs> all I have to be places that like my body's like trying to get to. And interestingly enough, somebody posted. Uh, like just a few months later, by the time we finished filming, right? The, I think the entire shoot was like between pre-production, post-production, like a year altogether. Right. And so by the time we started our publicity tour and we went to New York to do Ed Sullivan, right. I was, then I was obviously in the, you know, doing the initial stuff. And boy, I had those steps down perfectly. My body's like completely like, organized the way a five-year-old is is not so much so <laughs> watch it because it's perfect it's letter perfect i'm very proud of that ed sullivan show every step is right so i remember interviewing angela cartwright and she was telling me how much everybody or at least the girls were into the beatles at that time would you come in hang out with them and listen to beatles music is that a memory no I was I was probably taking a nap or doing whatever. The girls were basically Heather and Angela because they were both teenagers. Right. And the two of them were, it was like Beatlemania. They were so adorable. I remember watching that from afar, but, you know, I mean, everybody loves the Beatles. So of course, you know, I enjoyed them, but I didn't understand all of this. Rock and roll. These feelings <laughs> that they were having. <laughs> Did you, uh, you probably spend more time, I would think, with Debbie. Not really. We, you know, we ended up just basically, when I was working, I was working, or we were all together doing things. Right, right. You know, Debbie could work longer hours, so it was kind was of older. thing. I had to go and, I don't know, take naps or something periodically, which I hated, so... So Do Re Mi, which is my favorite, uh, was certainly filmed in Salzburg, at least the filming part of it. Yeah. And I love the transition from being in the meadow and then on the bicycles. And that was just such a fun scene to watch. I kind of call that the first music video, but I don't think I'm right because I saw, okay, I used to call it that until I saw a movie, until I saw Funny Face, you know, the what that wonderful Fred Astaire movie? Right, right. Funny Face has what I think is actually the first music video. It is a song called Bonjour Paris. Hmm. And it's Paris is seen from the three different perspectives of Audrey Hepburn, who goes to, I think, uh, Montparnasse or Montmartre, I don't know where she's with the intellectuals. And then you have um, Fred Astaire, who is... Where did he go? I forgot where he went. But Kay Kendall is in it as well. And she's in at the Ritz and she's where all the haute couture is in 
Paris on the hoot, all the all the different beautiful streets there for that. It was just it's a great sorry to talk about a different movie, but that is actually the first music video I think I've really seen. Well, I saw a little touch of your French accent, and I know that France holds a special place in your heart, I believe, because I think posts, uh, well, long post Sound of Music, but um, I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but you, you went off to France, as I recall. In fact, when I interviewed you in 82, I think you had come back from France. Uh, no. Well, I had you, you know what? I had visited a couple of different times before, and then okay. I was just planning. I ended up going in '84, um, you know, because I had a youthful illusion that my affection for the place, my love for French movies, and my extremely good French, which it was good French, and the fact that I had gotten a really good agent in Paris would overcome issues like things like work permit and work permits and all of that, which didn't, didn't exactly, you know, you, you, those are, those are rookie mistakes. Those are, you know, the mistakes of youth, but it's okay because I loved living there. I ended up living there and falling in love and getting sure. married, going to uh, Col de Louvre and, you know, enjoying myself a lot there. And I lived in London after that. And then New York. When you finished The Sound of Music, uh, I know you did television, you did some work, but you began to focus more on, on your singing, correct? I sang a lot at that point. And I, act, I did at the same time, after I, specifically after I graduated from college, go back into acting. And it was, unfortunately, the heyday of, the, of sort of TNA dumb blonde stuff. And you know, I did a couple of those really stupid roles and I hated them, which is how I ended up deciding that maybe I would go do French movies because that made so much sense. I'm being sarcastic, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I have no regrets about that. <laughs> so did you actually, you went over to France, but you probably didn't get work because you had um, um, legalities. Legalities. But, and I didn't get married yet. We ended up getting married when we were living in London, me and Philippe. Got but it. I'm, I was going to pull my, my resume together to get what I needed to get my British equity card. We were, he was ready to move to New York. And so we ended up in New York where I worked in all my children for a little while before I got pregnant with Eric. Got it. Got it. But you still have ambitions to do acting, correct? Well, you know, listen, let's put it this way. I don't, I'm not going to audition for things because I don't have time. Right. And, um, and by that, I mean, I've got my son and that's just a massive priority. I sure. could work, you know, I mean, but I, but I can't just run around and that's part of the issue with, you know, with kind of an acting career, you have to be willing to go to a lot of go sees for you know so however I wrote I write I'm writing or I wrote and I will write again once I can get this film finally made which is right. I which is the thing I am the most preoccupied with right now and have oh. been while um it's a movie called 20 Boulevard well 20 Boulevard Saint-Germain but it's 20 Boulevard for short right. Bruce Beresford who's one of the world's best directors as far as I'm concerned is directing it Oh, it's one of his favorite projects ever. And I'm not talking out of school to say that he's the best. He loves it. We've met in Paris to do location scouting. We've got kind of everything set up for this, except the pesky thing of 
all our financing. Financing. Which Tell is me about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got Bruce Beresford. We have a wonderful French co-producer. Um, you know, I have Catherine Deneuve, who was interested in doing it. Vincent Perez, who loves it and will do it. Everyone will do it if I, you know, if we come up with the... Well, it's a great credit to you to have a director of Bruce Fair Brairsford's caliber tell you how much he loves your writing. So that's that's good. What is the log line for this movie? Or are you allowed to say, are we are we uh, talking out of turn here? Well, I don't want to go into too much, too much detail. Well, just tell me what kind of a story. Is it a comedy or is it a romance? It's a drama, but there's a lot of humor in it. And it's okay. about... It's about three young American women who who find them find their friendships with one another in find themselves in Paris basically and become friends there. And you know about what drives specifically, well, non-French people to to Paris. Sure. Paris is that quintessential destination, you know, for everybody from Hemingway to. Fitzgerald and a million people in between and oh. and it's it's a very you know there were reasons these three women were young women were specifically drawn there and that's oh. what the exploration of that's great that's great well see you're keeping your creative flame alive and that's great I mean writing is the toughest thing to do in Hollywood because not only is the writing difficult but selling is just very challenging I um I've been writing now for quite a few years. I have, uh, I've been focusing on comedy writing and I'm partnered with a wonderful man named Billy Reback, who is a seasoned television writer. He was one of the original writer producers on the Tim Allen series, Home Improvement. So Billy is very well versed in comic and I, oh. I, in comedy. And I, I, I come to him with these crazy story ideas and he completely embraces them. And we have quite a, a litany of projects right now but it is challenging it's more it seems more challenging than ever but i i i think that one of the things that's going for you is the magic word of packaging because scripts sit by themselves can sit for years and nobody's going to touch them but they have bruce beresford on board that's a big plus for you well you know we're fully packaged we've done all the scouting we've done everything and we were fully financed twice and it didn't happen. So um, a third, a third uh, prospect is on the horizon and hopefully very close because then we can just go immediately to Paris and do this. And because it's, we're all set up. Well, we, we need to talk off camera because I have some thoughts for you as well. Uh, let's get back to the sound of music before the end of our hour. Um, the sound of music is such a, as I mentioned earlier, such a evergreen film is it's never out of the consciousness. So you've probably been reunioning with the cast for years. Um, who, who do you keep in touch with still? Well, you know, we all keep in touch with one another. Um, we generally, there's some group email at this point, at least once a week. Really? <laughs> some kind with, you know, some something to say. And, um, really I keep in touch with everyone you know Heather and I were besties so right. that like and you know Charmy and I that was it I mean Charmy's loss and Heather's loss are just I mean unrec it's unrecoverable 
for us as a group in, you know, and, and God knows when we're together now, we just feel their absence so much because we were a second family, you know, it's kind of corny to say, but it ended up being true. And I think also it stayed true because we did have so many reunions over the years. And, uh, but you know, what's been really, really remarkable besides that, which I think is incredible, incredible, the second family aspect of this, but it's that to this day, it doesn't matter what I said I've done or anything. If anyone hears anything about my having been in Sound of Music, which I can assure you, I never lead with and I never even discuss it, but people love to talk about it when they find out they generally are so touched and thrilled and everybody ends up telling me their wonderful stories of their families and how many Christmases they sat with their families to watch Sound of Music or something special they did standing in line somewhere. I had a, a I mean, from every walk of life, from every nationality, it's from every country. You know, when people sometimes ask me, when did you know that this film was a you know, a hit was a major success. I mean, I was little, so I don't know. It, it, yes, people started asking me for autographs, etc. But when I really knew was when I got fan mail from every single country that I couldn't even spell at the time. I mean, I remember getting fan mail from Paraguay and Uruguay. And I thought that was the, those were the strangest combination of letters as a little girl. <laughs> I had to get the map see where they were. And, you know, and Japan and, but like just everywhere. It was so amazing. I remember my mother had this gigantic box that she kept everything in and with all the little, that paper, that airmail, the little airmail blue paper, remember? And- that Very I mean, thin, that very thin that, blue paper, sure, sure. Yeah, it was, it was amazing to think something that I had done had touched people everywhere i mean a movie that i'd been in had had impacted all these people and to this day it's kind of a remarkable thing well you know it's interesting i i completely missed the original release i have no idea why because i remember in elementary school we were already singing songs from that show i mean so uh, and this is in the late 50s early 60s before it hit the movies but I went over to London for one of my first trips to Europe and I went to a British Film Institute screening of The Sound of Music and I sat in the theater and I that was the motivation for me to call the times when I got back and do a story on. on really? The, yeah, yeah. I said, oh my God, this movie, it really touched me because not only was it a wonderful musical, but the setting of it in history at that time was very interesting for me. Uh, it, it's funny, I, I remember about to turn 40, and I was uh, looking at the movie, and the, the movie begins with the word Salzburg in the last golden days of the 30s, and I was living the last golden days of the 30s, so I immediately, I immediately thought of that. It's a silly, silly memory, but... Uh... <laughs> Now, I have to ask you, uh, before we finish, I have to ask you about Christopher Plummer, you know, the dear departed Christopher Plummer. Over the years, there have been all these stories that he was uncomfortable in the role and referred to it as the sound of mucus and all, all that kind of stuff. You, you've certainly been in the sound of music 
uh, seen for all these years, an original performer. What was your feeling about his comfort on this role? Oh, all I know is I, I had no feeling of his having any discomfort at the time. He seemed a little more standoffish, certainly than Julie. But, you know, Julie's a woman and, and a super warm woman. He was a, a more shakespearean kind of an actor. So he was perfectly lovely to all of us. And I have a super adorable Christopher Plummer story. So many years later, right after, shortly after the, the tragedy of 9-11, I was living on the East Coast at the time. And um, a friend of mine invited me to the Westport Country Playhouse, which is in Westport, Connecticut, to see a, a show that was a tribute for, for the heroes of 9-11. And Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman and Christopher Plummer were all making appearances, telling stories, repeating poems, you know, uh, reciting poems, all that lovely, much loveliness. And it had been organized for me to go backstage to say hello. And when I got backstage, Paul Newman was waiting. Literally, Paul Newman was waiting for me. He said, your father has been pacing up and down. He's so excited to see you. And they, they basically ushered me. And Joanne Woodward, too, adorable. The two of them basically ushered me into where Chris Plummer was <laughs> waiting for me eagerly. And he just threw his arms out to me and said, Kim, so happy, so sweet. And I mean, it was a beautiful memory, a super tragic, you know, event and, and sad tribute, but a beautiful one and such a great memory of seeing, of seeing him. And then at that point, when he found out I was living in, uh, in Greenwich um, and he was in Westport, he wanted me to come over and spend time and et cetera, et cetera. So it was, he, he, he was lovely and his, oh my gosh, his wife was so, it's so beautiful. They're just the perfect like theater pair. I thought of uh, the Lunts, what was it, Claire and what that, that very famous theatrical couple from like the thirties or something. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, they were, were elegance. Well, you know, um, I have no doubt if we're all around in 20 years, we'll probably talk about this again because we seem to go every every few decades. But I definitely want. Hopefully I, I, we can do it from scratch, right? Because we'll have forgotten this entire conversation. I'm kidding. Absolutely not. No, just kidding. No, we're we're of the we're of the generation that we're not like our parents. When we're going to be in our 80s, we're not going to really be in our 80s. We're really going to be. 60s. Um, 60s, the new 40, etc. My favorite t-shirt is dead is the new 80. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, we've had a delightful conversation with Kim Carrath, one of the stars of The Sound of Music, who will always be in our hearts as little Gretel. And thankfully, Gretel made it through that shoot with a little extra lake water, uh, but she got through it. And uh, every time I watch it, um, I still look at you know the scene where you're talking about your little finger to Julie when she comes back, and and then you got the big laugh that it was in um, it was at Kurt's mouth, I think, or Friedrich's Friedrich's yeah. mouth. There you go. There you go. Everybody, you've been listening to the Lock Twenty Two Network. Thank you to our wonderful producer Ben Shrewsbury for helping us put on the show. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies tonight with Kim Karath. Thank you so much for joining us, Kim.
Oh, it was my pleasure. It's always so much fun to talk to you. We've got to do it sooner than 40 years, though, again. Absolutely. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Take care.